You're Going to Die, the podcast is brought to you by YG2D, a 501c3 nonprofit bringing diverse communities creatively into the conversation of death and dying, inspiring life by unabashedly sourcing our shared mortality. To find out more, visit www.yg2d.com. How do we live through the hardest things we've ever faced and then move forward to make a life of, of new meaning and then use what we learned from our loss to help others? This episode's guest is the embodiment of that. I think probably the theme that connects so much of the work we do with You're Going to Die Now, whether it be the prison context or hospice programming, the cancer patients, the grief groups, I think the theme for me that connects most, and I'm probably just projecting this. Oh, and hi, my name is Ned Buskirk. Welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast, your creatively conscious mortality podcast. Yes, so that theme when I say I'm projecting it, I mean that I feel like I'm in a stage of life where this is what you get faced with more and more as you get older. What does it mean to make a life of meaning as you lose more and more and more, <laughs> as you suffer more, maybe even? <laughs> I think that, that that's possible. Like, I think that there's a way I'm suffering now that I just didn't when I was 10 years old, 20 years old. And I suffered then too, but there's something different, right? As we get older, there is a ramping up and, and maybe some of us are privileged enough to say, like, it, it just hasn't happened yet, but it's inevitable. And this question then, I'd say especially a, a lesson I've been taught by the prison program, especially in the prison program, the work with the exonerees, people that got incarcerated sometimes for decades who were innocent and were not supposed to be in prison. How do you come back from that and make a life of meaning? This is such an important question for me, and I understand it is so hard to answer, but this episode's guest did find an answer. They are the embodiment of that. And I want to say that something I understand doing our work is that it makes sense when it feels impossible. So then out of that understanding of how impossible it is, it matters so much to meet people that have, that have somehow carried on and made a life of meaning, especially those that have gone on to help others in ways that connect to their own loss. Krista St. Germain is a master certified life coach, post-traumatic growth and grief expert, widow mom and host of the Widowed Mom podcast. When her husband was killed by a drunk driver in 2016, Krista's life was completely and unexpectedly flipped upside down. After therapy helped her uncurl from the fetal position, Krista discovered life coaching, post-traumatic growth, and learned the tools she needed to move forward and create a future she could get excited about. Now she coaches and teaches other widows so they can love life again too. Krista has been featured online and in print in Psychology Today, Medium, Thrive Global, Bustle, Psych Central, and Parents Magazine, and on select podcasts such as the Self Work Podcast, Seek the Joy, Life Check Yourself, and You Need a Budget, just to name a few. I hope you enjoy this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Krista St. Germain. 
yeah, grief has that way of being just so weird. Like time and grief is so weird. And the the experience of what what feels real and what doesn't is also so weird. I continue to wrestle with that and be just kind of amazed by it. Mm. Like how, because it's been, you know, he died in 2016. Here we are, 2023. It feels simultaneously like yesterday and also like forever ago. Right. And sometimes the details of what happened are so present and so big. And then other times I'm struggling to remember, which is also just a very unexpected experience, but also so common. Right. Mm hmm. Yeah, I really relate to that. I really especially relate to that. Like yesterday, I mean, 20 years for me and my mother's death mm -hmm. to, to the to the day, the day after Thanksgiving this year, to the day. And mm. yeah, so many years, so many lifetimes ago and yeah. uh, freshly yeah. like yesterday, you yeah. know, sometimes. Well, I, I guess I want to ask about Hugo, maybe like, you know, I've never done this, but I kind of want to know about Hugo. Mm -hmm. I, 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 maybe we start with who Hugo was uh, and is for you um, before we talk about what yeah. happened. Thank you for asking me that. Most people don't. Um, he was, in my opinion, kind of like a Renaissance man, right? He just had all of these broad, varied wild interests and opinions. And he was very well read and very passionate about things. Um, he was French Canadian and he came to work in the city that I live in because of the company that he worked for. He was an electrical engineer and he was obsessed with aviation and aerospace. And so he came to work for, um, Bombardier Learjet and that's where I worked. Um, he, so French, so English was his second language very strong French accent, which we mm -hmm. teased him relentlessly about <laughs> sure. uh, because there yeah. were no THs, right? Uh, uh, people could never understand when he, we would go to a restaurant and he would order a steak and he, you know, he would order it medium and nobody ever knew what he was saying. Um, so we would just give him a relentlessly hard time about that. He was very fiery. He, he swore a lot. Like the F word is probably his favorite word. I mean, he just was like, really full of passion. His neck would get all red when he was fired up about something. Um, he loved rockets. He loved barefoot water skiing and snow skiing and nature and black coffee. He hated laundry. He only did it once a month. Um, and he had this very particular system for how he would do laundry. Wait, <laughs> wait, would you have, I mean, would you have to do it in between or is it like no, when no. you met him, right? He's just like, I, I will not do this more He's than like, once. I, yeah. He hated, he hated shaving and laundry. So when he would shave, it was only every three days and he had to have red wine while shaving. It was like, he just hated it, but he would go and do it. And then laundry, he had this system where he would take one shirt, literally had all his shirts in aligned and all his pants lined up. And when he would get ready for work, he would grab the first shirt and the first pants in order. Yes. And then he would wear them at the end of the day, they would go to the end of the line back on the hanger. Mm. And then when he got through everything, which basically took him about a month to get through all the shirts and pants, then it was laundry day and he That's would do right. laundry. Yeah. So the last shirt. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he was just a personality. He was vibrant mm -hmm. and introverted. Um, but had a great laugh, loved, loved me fiercely, loved life, loved dogs. He was a gem. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, sharing all that. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Mm, what, um, well, what, what happened? What happened to Hugo? <clears throat> if you feel like talking about it. <clears throat> yeah, totally. So, um, we, so ironic 
really when you, when you think about it, when I was in my early twenties, just to give you a little context, when I was in my early twenties, one of my sorority sisters was killed and it was a really awful thing. And it just rocked our community. And it was just, she was killed along with uh, three of her friends. And in her memory, we had started a camp program for children who were blind or visually impaired. And so <clears throat> that was probably like the first major loss of my life was her. Mm. Um, and God, it was awful. But we felt a lot of comfort in being able to take what had happened and do something good out of it, right? So we created this camp program called Heather's Camp and it's a huge part of my life for 20 plus years. Mm. And so we were coming back from Heather's Camp which Hugo had never been to before. He agreed to come that first year and see what it was like. And he had totally gotten into it, which is funny because he'd never really volunteered. He'd never really worked with kids. That was like a new thing for him, but he'd really gotten into it. And he put himself in charge of all of the walkie talkies and like built a repeater with a welder in our living room. And, you know, just really took this role very seriously. Mm. And because he had taken it so seriously, he drove separately from me. He actually went up to the camp ahead of me a couple of days. He went up with my daughter and they were part of the setup crew. And so they had driven separately. And then I came up later. I, that's usually what I do is I come up when all the campers come. So we were coming back actually from that trip and we were almost home. We were almost in my city and we were on the interstate and I had a flat tire. And so I pulled over on the side of the highway and he was a little bit behind me enough that I had to call him, you know, and he was like, no problem. I'll be right there. And then he pulls up behind me on the highway in his, his Durango. And we get out of the car and we're talking about what are we going to do? We had AAA, right? And everything in my being is saying we should call AAA. This feels dangerous. But what I was hearing from him was no baby, Let's just, let me just change the tire. I'll get to it faster. They're going to take forever. I just want to get home and cuddle you and let's talk about the weekend. And I want to see Sadie, our dog. And so let me just change it. So I'm like, okay, cars are whizzing by, right? Internet, interstate speeds. And I and like literally feeling that. I can still feel it when I think about it, like how it felt for the the wind to come by when a car would go by. Anyway, so I'm I'm standing there by the side of the road. I am texting my daughter, Marissa. I was telling her, because she was on the trip with us, but she had gone back with the, the kids in the bus. So I'm texting her to tell her we're going to be late. He is in the back of my trunk trying to dig out all the walkie-talkies and all the camp supplies and get to the spare tire. And even though his hazard lights were on and it's, you know, daylight, it's 5.30 on a Sunday. So it's not dark. And we are firmly on the, the shoulder of the highway. Um, a, a guy just didn't see us. He did not see our hazard lights. He did not break. And of course, we later found out he also was intoxicated. He, mm. you know, his life wasn't going very well because he had both meth and alcohol in his system, but just crashed right in the back of oh the Durango gosh. and trapped Hugo between the Durango and the Camry. And, you know, I didn't see it. I just heard it. But the most awful noise I have ever heard in my whole life mm. of just, honestly, happiness mm. <laughs> being ripped away, mm. right? Going from... yeah. Yeah. really, truly like yeah, feeling bliss. like we were on a high, not mm -hmm. just because of where we were in our lives. Mm -hmm. Um, because really, you know, 
I felt like I was on a high, generally speaking, in my life, but because of what we had just been through that weekend yeah, right. together. Yeah, right. Yeah. And how amazing I, I just, that had no, just I been. I can only just... imagine yeah, that context, what it's like when you're with community like that. Um, yeah, yeah. And to be so excited to hear about, because it was such an important part of my life, I was so excited to connect with him when we got home mm -hmm. and hear about the impact that it had made for him. Mm. Right? And it was mm -hmm. just, yeah, just all signs were pointing towards amazing. And then not so much. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's how it happened. Mm. Surprisingly, unexpectedly, mm. violently. Mm. Did he die instantly, Krista? Or No, he didn't. <clears throat> he didn't die instantly. He didn't actually die until we got to the hospital about, mm, so it was about 5.30, so, you know, midday the next day. Mm. So he, um, fortunately, there was a nurse that happened to pull over rather quickly. And I called 911 pretty quickly too. It took me a little bit to figure out where I was. Mm -hmm. Um and how to give them directions because, you know, so much is happening so fast and you're mm -hmm. just so disoriented and it's just so chaotic. And, um, but I figured that part out. And then, uh, you know, the, the nurse that was there kept trying to assure me that, you know, he still had a pulse and, and he wasn't conscious or anything. It took like forever for, it felt like to me, of course, in, when I actually look at the police report, it wasn't as long as it felt like, mm. but it sure felt like forever for mm -hmm. them to get there, for them to pull the cars apart and pull him out and, and then get him stable in the ambulance to mm. move him because yeah. there was so much damage to yeah, his lower right. body. But oh my gosh. yeah, fast forward, several surgeries. He was kind of stable. They were going to do another surgery. Um, Probably remove one leg. During no, some, no. He, the only part he was conscious in when we were in the ambulance, he was, you know, moaning and obviously he wasn't completely out. When we, this is the part where I'll cry. When we got to the hospital and they pulled him out of the ambulance, that was the moment where I did get words. And he said, he said, love of my life, I'll be okay. And I'm so grateful mm. that he said those words. I didn't know how much I would need them. Not only in that moment yeah. where it gave me permission to have hope, mm. but also later and now mm -hmm. where it helps me believe that he is okay. Mm -hmm. He's not here, but he's okay. Mm. And then that was the only moment of consciousness. Mm. And then after that, you know, they kept him sedated and, you know, they, they repaired some internal bleeding and, and then they went to, to potentially take the leg, one of his legs. And because he had had so much damage to his, his lower body, um, they also wanted to prepare him, um, his kidneys were so damaged. Mm. And so they wanted to run a pick line and they ran the pick line up through his heart instead of down through his leg. And when they did that, it was, it was a student that, that did that. And there were just some known complications with that. And he accidentally punctured a hole oh my gosh. in his heart. So he coded and they didn't know why. And God, it was so, it was so hard to watch oh that gosh. for an hour mm. as they tried to, tried to resuscitate him and bring him back. And mm. I mean, he honestly, he wasn't, this is what they told me before they did that surgery. They said, 
He's not out of the woods. The doctor said he's in the middle of the woods and, and we're trying to coax him to the other side. And so it wasn't as though that surgery had no risk to it. And it definitely wasn't a guarantee that he was going to live. Um, but it was really extra hard mm. to know that what had happened was in part an error. Mm-hmm. A known complication, but also an error. And mm. the the attending doctor, I mean, he just cried and cried. He felt so bad. Oh my gosh. As he was telling me, you know, because he was the one responsible for that student. Oh yeah, my gosh. And he God, he just Oh yeah, my it was, gosh, it was, Krista. It yeah. was rough. Mm. It matters so much to me to have this moment with you to hear about this. So I just want you to know how much it means. Well, thank you. To hear this part of the story. And I think very immediately just to understand like with anyone's death, how complicated the feelings are around it. But for some reason, I'm like, especially feeling that listening to some of these details, you know, thinking about the moment where Hugo just insisted on doing the tire, you know, and uh, yeah. these things. Yeah, exactly. right. <laughs> these things that I just can only imagine not to get to your work, but to, to process personally. Um, and I say that not to get to your work because I know also it's part of how you make space, right? It's how, like, how do you do the work you do is to acknowledge, like, there may be shame, there may be guilt, yeah. you know, there may be anger. And I mean, these are all very obvious emotions that I'm positive you must have had to deal with coming out of this yeah. loss. Yeah, for sure. Especially the guilt. Mm. That was a hard one, mm-hmm. you know, because all the stories of the woulda, shoulda, couldas. Yeah. All the, if I only had had that tire checked, if only I had insisted we call AAA, if only I had pulled up a little further on the shoulder where maybe it was wider and it could have been safer, you know, mm-hmm. all these efforts, which I later, uh, I mean, I have so much compassion for that version of myself and for why I was thinking that. And also like... I understand how hard it is to accept that we're powerless and we don't want to be, Yeah, you know, we don't want to be. And, and so how hard my brain was working to find a reason, mm-hmm. something, anything to blame. Right. Yeah, And that's like, I, I don't know. I'm really feeling this now. That's like a version of trying to get control or have some kind of power over things too. Cause then we're yeah. like, well, what's the, me- you know, what's the meaning? What is the, instead of probably what you ended up getting a lot of maybe in certain places in your life during that time. I mean, hopefully, cause it feels like what you're doing for others, but it's that moment where no, maybe like more importantly than anything, you need somewhere just to name that thing wholly and fully and have people yeah. like receive it and hold it with you. And yeah, as opposed to talk you out of it. And mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And ironically it was actually, I felt more guilt and anger towards myself than I actually felt towards the driver. Mm, Yeah. Which when I look back is really surprising to me. Mm. But I, I just kind of thought, you know, he didn't do that on purpose. That, That doesn't excuse what he did. No, but he didn't do it on purpose. And also your life is not going well. If you know, yeah. you're turning to meth and alcohol on yeah. a Sunday afternoon either and getting behind the wheel of a car. But to your point earlier, it's like what you were dealing with was the ways that you felt loss of power, loss of control. Yes. You yeah. wished you could have or regret, you know, that that's such a part of this kind of mm-hmm. experience of being yeah. alive, especially when we're in loss. 
Yeah. Is there anything or anyone, including myself, that I can mm-hmm. blame so mm-hmm. that the world makes sense to me again? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, um, what immediately, you know, when I talk about my mother's death and the listeners have heard me say it a lot, fighting a bereavement group wildly at 26 years old, still kind of can't believe like you're acknowledging that younger version mm-hmm. of you. Um, can't believe that I somehow had the presence of mind, the, the like moment where someone recommended, I, you know, I don't even know how that all unfolded actually, but mm-hmm. I founded a bereavement group for the loss of a parent. And that's, in some ways for me, the beginning of what I do now, right? It's that place where I went to community. I didn't even have a therapist one-on-one until maybe a year or two after that, where I went to community and shared, shared that loss. And that's where I think my, my beginnings really started for the work I do with you're going to die. And I guess I'm wondering Mm -hmm. for you as much as part of this too, we want to make time for where you looked around and couldn't find the space or Mm -hmm. found yourself on that grief plateau. I'm also wondering like where, where was the moments of like, oh yeah, you get it or yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't find a grief container. I mean, for a long time, to be honest, but what I did find, I had had an amazing therapist who had helped me when I had gone through my divorce, my first marriage. And actually my cousin and I had the same therapist. And so I, I heard from my therapist real quick because my cousin had already let her know what had happened and I had an appointment real quick. So that was a really good thing for me because. Had you done, you'd done that therapy already then you you had an experience. I had that relationship with her. Yeah. Yeah, I felt, I felt safe with her. I had that relationship with her. Um, and I really quickly started experiencing that when I talked about what happened in front of people that loved me, they felt bad. And then I found myself wanting to make them feel better. And I knew that was not what I needed, right? I didn't want to be in a place where I was consoling other people. So this will, you know, all the time I needed really to articulate out loud what had happened until it made sense to me. You know, that weirdness where, you know, it happened, but you don't know it happened. Mm Mm-hmm. And just being able to talk about it and go through it was really helpful to me mm. um, until your, it wasn't. In your work now, <laughs> okay, great. Wow, that's another thread I'm going to have to pull on. First of all, uh, in your work now with with uh, post-traumatic, uh, you know, in those contexts, is there an understanding from that education that part of why that is, is because we're disassociating maybe constantly during that time. Cause that's how we're trying to cope. Like, what is it about what you just described? I'm wondering in like mental health terms, you know, that, mm-hmm. that it, this it makes sense, you know, it makes sense that it like both didn't happen and did. And it makes mm-hmm. sense that we want to like put words to it because that's the only way to kind of get close to it. And oftentimes we're doing that with other people, even though I did a ton of writing, I probably did mm-hmm. more writing during that time and that loss yeah. than I have in my entire life. You know, it mattered so much to like get it mm-hmm. out of me and in front of me. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering about that. And then, and then I don't want to forget what you just said, which is there was a time when suddenly it didn't help or something yeah. shifted. So, um, we'll start with the first thing, you know, what is yeah. that about? Like, like not it not having happened it. And then it, yeah. yeah. How I understand it now, which I wish I would have known then is that, you know, 
the human brain, when we care about someone deeply, we would feel so uncomfortable all the time if we didn't believe we knew when we were going to see that person again, right? And where they were. Mm. And so it's so awesome that we have this brain that is really good at making relatively accurate predictions so that we don't have to worry about that. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I didn't know then is that the human brain needs to relearn and essentially update the information Mm. so that it starts making accurate predictions again. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's why I felt crazy when the garage door would go open and I would like be like, Oh, he's home. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Or something would happen and I would want to text him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. My brain just kept predicting that he was coming back and should be there, mm-hmm. which you kind of don't want to articulate that because you feel like a lunatic because mm-hmm. you know, intellectually they're not coming back, mm-hmm. but yet a part of you is like, no, they're on a business trip. Mm-hmm. That's how I felt. He's mm-hmm. on a business trip. He's mm-hmm. just, he's, he's coming back. And you know, just knowing now that, okay, yes, it's not that time heals. It doesn't, but also there, there is the need for time to pass so that our brain can have enough, enough exposures to the new reality so that it adjusts the predictions. And that weird feeling in Mm. the middle is really hard as it does that. Mm -hmm. And also then that like, that yearning, right. That also doesn't make sense to you when you're trying to solve the problem of bringing them back, but yet you also know they can't be brought back, Mm -hmm. but yet you feel yourself wanting to solve it and you feel yourself searching and yearning and seeing them in crowds when they aren't there or hearing their voices when they're, you know, Yeah. but it really just is our brain trying to, to get us to find them and not give up. Right. Yeah. Even then, placing yeah. them in reality. I really, the, the hearing their voice thing feels really powerful because mm-hmm. you feel like your brain trying to like actually place them somehow, you know, like, yeah. oh, well, if you're not, if it's not happening, I'm going to like somehow make it like uh, an occurrence, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, I always felt like with my mom, I don't know why this connect. I'm, I'm not totally sure why this connects to, to that, that for me, but I would tell people and I feel it still right is in those first months and years, really a few years for sure. But definitely in those first days and months, there was this experience of me also like being partly wherever they are, you know? And so when you're, mm-hmm. what you're describing to me feels familiar in that, that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of how I articulated it. Then it's the insanity, which I want to be careful using the word. Like I was crazy or I yeah. was insane, but like that, that's a little bit of the best way to say it. Right. Is that my being in reality had me totally like out of my mind because Mm -hmm. I'm with half with my mom and doing everything you just described, which is, you know, definitely like losing it a little bit. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd say maybe in contrast to how we're used to working, it's impossible to work that way anyway. Especially like the brain to operate the same after a loss like that of such significance. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so disorienting. Yeah. I, I really like um, Mary Frances O'Connor. Her book, The Grieving Brain, I just think is stunning. And I love her metaphor about the dining room table, which is just like this idea that, you know, if you walk into your living room or your, your dining room, you 
you could do that in the dark and know where your dining room table is, right? And you could avoid it because you've done it so many times. Mm. And if you go in there and all of a sudden you you bump into where the dining room table should be, but it's not there. Yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. It's so, it doesn't make oh my sense. Gosh. Yeah, right. And we have to to have enough time pass and we have to go into that room enough times for our brain to learn that no, it's stop predicting that the dining room table should be there. Mm-hmm. It's not. Mm-hmm. So at that time, are you going to therapy? Like how soon did that, were you able to, if you can remember and, and then how often? I yeah. Mean, oh really? Yeah. Oh wow. Um, yeah. But I mean, within the month, I mean like right within, oh, yeah, within no, the boom. week. I, yeah. Right. I, I, I don't even know that. I'm like, had he died before I had, the, she had the appointment set? Mm. I mean, it was fast. Mm-hmm. Like my cousin was, mm. had my therapist shortly notified. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So, you know, then there's the, all of the funeral arrangements and the dealing with all of that. And, and I mean, I, um, I don't mean to segue like therapy. I'm just acknowledging this is the space you're in during that, you know? And I'm like, yeah. wh- where all, even everything you're listening now, like how we even somehow manage the impossible to organize an event, you know, when, right. our, when our brain's working, like you just described. And then deal with all the insurance and then deal with, and we had booked a trip two weeks after he died. We, we were taking our kids to Mexico. We had bought a condo in Mexico mm-hmm. in June mm-hmm. and we were going to take our kids back there and dealing with all of that. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause I still wanted to take the kids. Yeah. And, um, but wow, that was a lot when I look back on it and think, how did I even do that? And then being on the phone with people and getting my dad the ticket instead of Hugo and just, mm-hmm. and the investigation part of it and talking to the, you know, the highway patrol and all of that. Yeah, it was, it was a lot. Usually right about now, I would tell you to go rate and review the show or become a patron on Patreon or spread the word about this podcast. You know what I'm going to do today? Mainly because I can tell you all are listening when I say rate and review the show. Like I've seen the ratings and reviews coming through. So instead of all that stuff today, I want to do something that risks maybe being a little cheesy or melodramatic. I want to do something that I'm feeling right now. I want to do something that I'm feeling the lesson in life I'm getting from others. I'm feeling this lesson right now. I'm feeling this lesson because of what I'm going through personally in my life. And this isn't a vague booking thing. You know, I don't mean to like throw out like, oh my goodness, what is it? You know, it's just the things we end up dealing with in our lives that confront us with mortality. Like I'm feeling a lot of that right now. And I think we're all sharing a lot of that. I think in a way we're privileged, most of us to be in the world in a way where we don't have to think about dying. And there's a definitive thing I notice 
from when my mom dies and how it feels to be alive in the wake of that fresh loss and what starts to happen when you don't have that kind of presence in your life, that kind of reminder. There is a difference. However hard it is to face loss, to be in grief, however hard it is to face our mortality confronting experiences, maybe our health, something going on with our health as a good example, or someone in our life's health, we mostly don't have to really deal with the fact that we're going to die someday. And so then maybe we make decisions and we operate in a way that, okay, let me put it this way. I know that I operate in a way that doesn't keep me present to the things that matter more than anything. It's just, that's just how it is. It's why I do You're Going to Die. I started You're Going to Die. I started this nonprofit. I started these events and everything we do started because I wanted to have a place where I could keep remembering, keep connected to, what I got when my mom died, what I felt when my mother-in-law died. And I'm feeling it in my life now, separate of my work, I'm feeling it, but also with my work, of course, and also globally, the privilege we have to not feel our lives under threat. And there are people in the world that constantly are feeling that. And so I just wanna say, out of the influence of this fact of our being alive that we mostly don't have to face, I wanna bring it in here in the middle of this episode in the middle of an episode with a guest who suddenly lost someone that she loved dearly. I wanna encourage you to take a minute to catch your breath and think about someone you love who you haven't just taken a moment to say, I love you, I'm so glad you're here. I did it this morning. I put a little love note in my kids' lunchboxes. I don't do that very often, but I did it. I put it in their little treat Tupperware and it just says, I love you so much. And I know if anything were to happen, God forbid, to me today or to them, it's one of the last things they'll get from me. It's one of the last messages I'll have made clear. And so during this time with this music playing, do that. Just take a moment, think of someone and shoot them a text, shoot them a note, tell them you love them. Thanks for listening to You're Going to Die, the podcast. It never felt, I don't know if unvaluable is a word. It always felt valuable in the beginning, just to go to a place Mm. where I could talk to someone who would just let me talk and did not try to convince me to feel anything other than what I was feeling and to whom I felt I could be completely honest. So there was so much value in that. Mm -hmm. I do wish in retrospect that I would have had some tapping or some EMDR a little earlier. Um, tapping is the tool that I love now and it's the tool that's helped me the most, but I do, because there were so many traumatic elements of what happened. Yeah. I do kind of wish I had had a little bit of help with that earlier. That feels significant part of the, like what's, what your body was needing at that time too, uh, you know? Yeah. Can you, can, I know you're, I'm cut you off. Just, I just want to make sure maybe speak a little more to the tapping and what that is and the, um, would you say, uh, EMDR? EMDR. Yep. Yeah. So, um, EMDR is eye movement desensitization, um, and reprocessing. And the, you know, 
there are several tools that do similar things, but essentially when you've had something happen that you have, your nervous system has received as very traumatic, um, you can be responding in the present moment to a danger that isn't actually there. But it makes sense why, because it, that, that perceived danger has reminded your nervous system of a prior accurate danger, real danger. So for me, that would be things like, uh, the sound of metal, you know, loud metal. Yeah. That could be like CPR scenes on a television show that I didn't expect. Uh, anytime I would see, if I'm driving on the highway and I see someone pulled over changing a tire, right? Those kinds of things where I'm clearly not in danger when that's happening, mm -hmm. but my nervous system sees something that reminds it of the past and goes right back to the accident. And now I feel like I'm in danger. My, my body is responding as though there's a problem we need to solve. Mm -hmm. And so I think had I been able to, for instance, you know, do something like EMDR tapping where you're able to send the calming system, calming signal to your nervous system so that your body actually believes that you are safe mm. as you re-remember, I would have had, I probably would have neutralized some of those triggers mm -hmm. earlier. Yeah. I mean, you're getting, it seems that you're getting at, there was a lot of talking in therapy, which was hugely significant. And there was another stuff happening that really right. was eventually necessary. And then I, and Correct. then I, I think you imply that there's a point, was there a point when suddenly you're like, I can't do that. I can't go and do this anymore with this therapist. And I'm not blaming, the th I'm not blaming the therapist, but I'm wondering about what you acknowledged already was that there was a moment when you were like, this is, I need something different. More. Yeah, there was, there was that moment. It actually wasn't so much about the traumatic aspects at the time. I don't even think I realized that then, but I think I had stopped talking about that part of it so much. And, and I got to a place where everyone, including the therapist was telling me how great I was doing. And I could see why they were saying that because I was back together. Yeah. She says I, with the question mark. She does. Voice. Yeah. Just to be clear, Chris is using air quotes. Um, you're, this is the grief plateau. Right. Right. Which at the time I, I didn't have words for. Um, but how it felt to me was, because I went back to work relatively quickly about six weeks after he died, which, you know, some people go back like the next week. So it's again, relative, but I went back, I think fairly quickly. And in some ways that was a great thing because he and I worked together. And so everybody in my work environment knew him, loved mm -hmm. him. It, it was just such a safe um, place to be. Mm -hmm. Also really hard because there's just reminders everywhere. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, it's not some, for some people work can be like an escape for me. It was just reminder after reminder after mm -hmm. reminder. So, uh, goods and bads there. But anyway, at that place where I felt like I was functioning and back to okay, um, but not feeling great on the inside. Like I kind of got to the place where I was like, okay. I always knew I would survive it. There was never a point in time where I didn't think I would survive it. Never. I knew I would survive it. No, there Wait, really. Why, no. How did you know? How, how, yeah. How do you? How did you know that? Or how are you sure of that? Or did that come from another part of your life? That that. I don't know. Mm. I don't. Know. I'm thinking. I appreciated you talking about the loss of your friend. You know, your friend, your community, mm -hmm. in, in the sorority. Yeah, I do think that was part of it. Also, I think I was 
maybe drawing on some spiritual beliefs that mm-hmm. th- they were just kind of lurking, <laughs> maybe not at the mm-hmm. forefront, but they were just kind of like things mm-hmm. that I believed. I believed mm-hmm. I would be okay. And by okay, I just mean, I didn't think I was going to die. Right. I knew I would live. I knew I would survive. I knew I would see another yeah. day, but what I, and I, and I could draw on, okay, when this happened and Heather died, you know, we, we actually took this and we, we made good in the world because of it. So I, yeah. I knew that was possible. Yeah. It was quite offensive. And the idea of that in the very beginning, right? I didn't, that's not where my brain went. Um, but I didn't really, what I struggled with was that, was the idea that I could be as happy as I once was. Mm. Right. Because I was like, yeah, you don't get that twice in one life. Mm-hmm. You don't, you know, that was 40 on some baggage. Right. And he knew all of it. He knew all of the shadows. He knew all of it. And he loved me through all of it. And it was really difficult to imagine that I could have that level of love and acceptance again. So it was like, I'll get through. And, but now I just need to focus on the kids. Right. My, I've had my shot. So now it just Mm -hmm. becomes about being grateful for what I had and focusing on the kids. And that's the point somewhere in there where therapy just wasn't cutting it for me anymore. Well, what did you suddenly real? What, what, what shifted? What did you realize? I mean, cause it sounds like you just come to terms with it, but then you, but then something must've come up. It was this very strange combination of events. So it was, so first of all, I had decided I don't want to work at Learjet anymore. Yeah. I I was going to say, I I don't want to be in the business of making planes. I I don't care. Yeah. Hugo loved it. I liked the money and the security and the 401k, but honestly, and the people were great too, but I didn't, I didn't care about the planes. Mm -hmm. And so my therapist was like, you know, therapy, (laughs) you should become a therapist and I'll help you get into an MFT program. How how long ago, like how, when did that happen? Hugo died in in August and we were having these conversations in December. Holy shit. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, I applied for that MFT program in oh December. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. Chris, so it was like, oh wow, that's it incredible. was like, okay, you should become a therapist. I'll help you get into MFT school. And also then you can come and work for me. And then when I retire, you can buy my practice. Oh my gosh. Wait. Okay. <laughs> hold on. Hold on. So I, I want to acknowledge you said it too. You're like kind of offended, offending your own yourself, I guess, about the idea early to think that there was something to be made like Heather's, uh, mm-hmm. Like Heather's camp. Yeah. Heather's camp. And like you, your compulsion to do that. And I mean this for certain people in the world, right? It's like, you've met plenty of people who, and I mean, I guess there's a way that maybe part of healing is how we all do some kind of meaning making and finding purpose out Mm -hmm. of the loss. But I think there's a unique person that could that quickly Mm -hmm. turn around, not even turn around, but out of that loss, start a path that absolutely is born from what you're Mm -hmm. even currently like living in still, you know, like you're still grieving when you went and signed up for that program, you know? Yeah. And I don't think I, at that point, imagined myself in the grief space, really. It was Mm -hmm. just like, okay, this is, I'm not, if life is this short, am I doing what I want to be doing? The answer to that question is no. What would I enjoy doing? Okay. Well, I'm always the person that everybody comes to. You know, I would like to help people. Yeah, that's right. That, that feels like a fit to me. So, okay, we'll go down that route. Mm -hmm. 
And so, so I started that and I, the program that I was accepted into this MFT program didn't start until the next August. And I also needed one more class that I didn't have in my bachelor's degree. So I needed to take that class. So I was, that's what I was doing. So the next year I was going to take that class, which I did and wait for that program to start. And then at the same time, literally in December, a life coach that I had followed and I had listened to their podcast for a number of years, way before Hugo died, whose work had always resonated with me, launched a program that was not grief specific, by the way, but it was the first thing that they had ever launched that felt resonant to me because mostly what they did before was like training other people to be life coaches and weight loss stuff. And that really wasn't of interest to me, but this program 297 a month. I mean, more than I had ever spent on myself. And by that, I mean, $297 a month. Like yeah, yeah, I, I, I literally it, was it. not used to investing in myself or my, yeah. my wellness and insurance, thankfully at a very low copay, mm. but I just decided, okay, I, I, that might be a really good thing for me to do. Why mm. not? Right. And they, and yeah. she said, if you don't like it, you can quit at any time. And also if you do the work and it doesn't work, I'll give you your money back. And I was like, all right, I already know this person. I trust her. Why not? Are all these things happening out of you realizing therapy isn't enough or? Mm, no, I don't think so. I think mm. at that point I was kind of like, I'm not, I don't think I had an alternative of, of in my mind. And I don't think my awareness was high enough that I really realized that I, that there were more tools out there that I needed. Yeah. Because what I was experiencing felt so believable to me and so not optional to me that, that it's only with hindsight that I look back and say, Oh, of course. Like mm. I was believing my best days are behind me as though that was factual. And, and my therapist was not challenging that. Yeah. Right. And that's no, that is not an insult to her. I still love no, no, this woman yeah. and refer yeah. people to her. Right. Yeah. Cause you probably, you were feeling like I'm okay. And uh, I won't have that ever again. Yes. Like yeah. I'm doing okay. And maybe, Everybody's maybe part of that was okay. mm -hmm. me not articulating it. I don't honestly even know. Yeah. Right. I mean, that would make sense that freshly to feel it maybe, or just, yeah, the parts of us too, that I feel like we sort of touched on a bit already where you're kind of compartmentalizing or your stuff's shut down. You're disassociating because it's like, mm -hmm. you can't be with it all. Yeah, like you had to get Christy, you had to all. get to the plateau. You know what I mean? Like keep talking about this plateau. You're like, never thought I'd quote a, a, a two words more in a, a conversation, but like, yeah. it's one that's really stuck with me. It's like, you got to that plateau. Like that's a thing that you needed to get to and yeah. you didn't want to stay there and you did so much to get there. Yeah. Yes. And somebody else had to show me that I didn't have to stay there. I think I kind of like, I knew I didn't want to, but I I didn't have the belief and I didn't have the how, and I didn't, I didn't see the options. It right? feels like to me that part of a, what helped you see what could be possible next was you early on doing what you brought up at the beginning of our conversation, which is starting to make a life of meaning that, um, in contrast to the ways you'd lived your life before Hugo died. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. That, that, that compulsion is what would start opening up the possibilities of other ways to care for yourself that you likely realize suddenly, oh shit, like that was, that's missing. I want Mm -hmm. that. Like your schooling opened those possibilities up, right? Mm -hmm. The coaching. Yeah. 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 And then coaching did too. And then that kind of happened in parallel where, where I was in this coaching program, not actively being coached by the way, just literally doing the stuff in the workbook and watching other people get coached because all the coaching calls were happening when I worked, which is so fascinating to me. And then just over time of doing, you know, waiting for that MFT program to start using the tools I was learning in coaching um, and taking that abnormal psych class in the background. Um, that was the one missing class. That was the one missing class. Your abnormal yeah. psych. Um, and, and then it just, I just started to, to feel attraction Uh, that I had never felt before. And by the time I got to the end of, it was like May, I was like, okay, I think, because it's going to take me two years to get this MFT degree. So maybe I'll become a life coach. I'll go through their coaching program because this seems awesome. And then, then I'll kind of like have a jobby on the side and that'll be fun as I, as I pursue this MFT program and then, you know, I'll be done and then I'll be a therapist. So then that was my plan. And then a few, a few months into that, before the MFT program even started, it took a lot of courage, but where I, the conclusion I reached was this is more powerful to me. This is what feel this, I feel called to this and, uh, I don't want to be an MFT. Oh yeah. I just want to go in all on coaching. And so Mm -hmm. I pulled myself out of that program right before it started. And I decided to pursue the coaching. And so I went with a coaching certification instead of therapy and then Mm. literally didn't ever look back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But that, but even then I still wasn't planning to do grief work. Right. Even then you were thinking more. Yeah. What were, what, what what was the initial? I didn't really know. I didn't really know what I was going to help people with. I just felt like the tools were powerful, but I hadn't done enough work on my own. I hadn't, done enough on my own thoughts about my loss and my own thoughts about my future, my thoughts about myself. Mm -hmm. I hadn't done enough of that work to see that it could not. I mean, the only, the only thing I could imagine when the idea of doing grief work came up is that it would be heavy all the time, that it would drag me down, that I would never be able to move past it. Right. Um, I had a lot of imposter thoughts too about, Mm. you know, we weren't married that long. So who am I, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he had, he had his child. I had mine. We weren't biological parents together. So who, am you know, uh, I just had a, a lot of stuff to work mm. through before at a certain point where I was like, wait a minute, why would I not help women with grief? Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, well, I mean, how far in, how far in, like when did um, that happen? And did that so coincide happened- with like you starting to do more of like, I'm not really, it sounds like there was also a time where you stopped feeling you weren't really dealing with the loss and the grief anymore. Like somehow, is that sort of what you just said? That there was a time when you stopped? Yeah. I mean, I don't think you're ever not dealing with the loss and the grief anymore. I think it just keeps coming in waves and Mm -hmm. shows up differently, but it wasn't my predominant focus either. Mm -hmm. And I also think a lot of the stuff that I got out of the coaching program initially, I purposely did not look at it through a grief lens because I was trying to distract myself from that. Yeah. Right. And so right. I was yeah, kind of I mean. taking yeah, these little side tangents mm-hmm. of other types of, mm-hmm. of self-improvement. And, mm-hmm. um, I didn't really realize that at the time, but I can see it when I look back, mm-hmm. it's like, Oh, that was convenient. Well, how did you see that that's what was going on? Like what, 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 if you didn't, when did you shift that? You know, when did you, when did you click that you were like grief? 
Like that's where I need to turn. That's where I need to go deeper. I think some of my peers that had done the life coaching certification that I did started to bring that to my attention. So when we went through training, of course, you know, a huge part of, of that process is using the tools on yourself. Right. And so that, that at that point was then when I actually did start to use some of it on Mm. the grief and what had happened. And you know, they're, they're trying to help you prepare for life after certification, which means how are you going to apply what you've learned? Let's, let's figure that out for you. And I was like, every, anything but grief. Um, and you know, coming up with lots of ideas and, and people in my small cohort kind of kept coming back to, are you sure you don't want to, like, you, <laughs> right. it seems like you're really helpful to people and they might need to know these tools. And, um, even then though, so I certified, uh, let's see. Yeah. 2017, I went through the certification by the end of 2017, I was done. And then even then I really wasn't planning on doing grief. I actually quit my job to go and work for the school who certified me in a completely unrelated role. But it, but it was the impetus I needed to leave that job because I knew the money was reliable and then that didn't work out. So I was only there for like six weeks and then that didn't work out. And thank goodness it didn't work out because what I do now is so much more important to me than Mm -hmm. probably what I would have done if I had stayed that course. And it got me away from that. You know, it gave me, um, the courage to take the leave. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I wasn't going from good job to self-employed. I was going from good job to another job. Mm -hmm. And then when that didn't work out, I was like, all right, I think I'm, this is, I think this is a sign here. And I think what I really need to do is double down and I need, and grief is what I want to do. So that's when I decided I'm not going back to my corporate job and I'm not looking for someone else to pay me. I'm going to figure out how to help widowed moms. And that's what you've done ever since. And that's what I've done ever since. And now I'm like, how could I ever do anything else? Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Tell me about the post-traumatic, like that piece of the work you do. It feels pretty Mm -hmm. important. Yeah, I think it is. I remember um, always, or at least feels like always being familiar with post-traumatic stress, that concept. And I remember hearing post-traumatic growth and, you know, I've always been kind of like the self-help enthusiast since I read Marianne Williamson's A Return to Love at like 12. Mm -hmm. Like... (laughs) Early, early. So here we are. Yeah. Right. I've always had that inclination, but I remember hearing that term and, um, just kind of be like, what, what, what is that? And so what I have come to think of it like is, is, is like a tornado, um, because I live in Kansas and that's easy for me, but like, (laughs) yeah, great. If, well, let me back up. So post-traumatic growth is, have you talked about it on your podcast? No. Am I repeating mm-hmm. things for you? No, okay. Please. So post-traumatic yeah, growth, um, a, a phrase that was coined in the mid nineties by a couple of researchers. And what they were noticing is that after uh, a, a trauma, people tended to fall into not two categories, but three kind of previous to their work. We thought it was two where people would experience like a quality of life or a level of wellness before the, the trauma. Then after the trauma, they would dip back down and stay there one group. Second group would dip down, but then also bounce back to where they were before. That was like the goal, right? If somebody's experienced something traumatic, the best we can hope for is let's get them back to where they were before. But then they started noticing that there was this third group of people 
who were experiencing the dip, but also not just bouncing back, they were bouncing forward. Mm. They were reporting greater levels of satisfaction with life, greater mm-hmm. quality of life. And it wasn't in spite of what had happened. It was literally because of what had happened, right? They had taken that experience, made choices accordingly, and therefore created lives that were more of what they wanted. And so to me, I think about it like a tornado w- to say that, you know, if, if a tornado comes and knocks down your house, you didn't ask for that tornado, first of all. Also though, now you need to find a new place to live. You could just rebuild the house that you had before as close as possible, right? That wouldn't be, there wouldn't be anything wrong with that. Also though, you probably learned some things having lived in that house, you probably are a different person now than when you bought that house, right? You could pause and take the opportunity to update the design of your house and give that plan to the builder, right? And that that is post-traumatic growth. That is saying, okay, here's what I've learned and here's what I want to be different. Mm. And where I find that initially I would have, I would have resented this idea had I had it earlier in grief, because what I would have made it mean is that, okay, if I, if I update the design and I ask for the new house, that means I didn't love the old one. Yeah. That feels like an important thing to acknowledge. And I wonder if you could connect it to when you're coaching, uh, widows, um, how part of ever getting to that growth depends on being fully with what is. And I I guess I don't want to totally stop going with the post-traumatic growth, but but maybe it's good to just stop for that. Stop there for a second since you just named it. Yeah. Yeah. So being with what is. Yeah. And knowing like to go to a new, uh, someone with fresh loss, Mm -hmm. what wouldn't work is to say things will be better than ever. (laughs) Oh God, please don't say that. (laughs) No. Right. Also, I think People always ask me when I go on podcasts and they say, okay, what do we say to someone who's had a recent loss, right? That's always what they want to know because they're worried about saying the wrong thing. And I totally get that. And also I think it's the absolute wrong question to ask. Mm. It's not, what do we say? It's what are we trying to, to accomplish with what we say? Why are we saying words? And what most of us are doing is we're seeing someone else in pain Mm. We don't know how to, to be okay when they, then when we don't think that they are. And so we're trying to say words to make them feel better so that we can feel better. So when you say, can we be with what is to me, that is the answer is if that is the motivation and we don't perceive them as broken, or we don't think that the intense emotion that they're experiencing is indicative of a problem that a, we can solve or B, we even need to then we can just be the witness and be with them. And we don't say the dismissive minimizing thing that nobody wants to hear. He's in a better place. At least he's no longer suffering. He would want you to be happy. You're still young. You'll find someone else. Mm, Ask me mm -hmm, how I know. mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Because it isn't a problem that we feel this pain. Yeah, right. It's normal. It's our natural mm-hmm. response to loss. We, we want to feel this pain as much as we don't particularly enjoy it. We want it and we want others to be with us. We don't want to be talked out of it. And so I think that's why it would have been so offensive to me is because it would have felt minimizing and dismissive. Yeah. It would have felt like you don't think my pain is valid or you don't think I can handle this. 
you think I should be grateful when what I really need you to say is this sucks and I love you. so much. If you want to get connected to Krista's work, go to the website coachingwithkrista, K-R-I-S-T-A dot com. I'm going to put that link along with some other stuff that relates to Krista's work in the show notes. So go get connected there. Hello, Nick Jaina. Hello. I think this is this is a funny thing that happens for us is that we want to talk about the conversations in the episode. And I think sometimes when we ask each other how we're doing, it just launches us in these wild directions. So maybe mm. let's just like stay with how was this conversation for you today? How was this editing um, for you? I think you do both like because you feel so much and I think you just relate to rea- reality in such like thoughtful, complex ways. I can feel you both doing like good job of getting the thing done with editing and like feeling stuff while you're doing that. I don't know if that's a fair description um, or if you could describe it better. Maybe probably you could. (laughs) As you're saying that, I'm realizing like my whole last few days has been, you know, I lead memoir writing workshops and the prompt that I gave this week was what is breaking your heart. And I have Mm. 33 students in those workshops. So I'm reading 33 pieces about heartbreak. And then I edited two episodes yesterday about (laughs) loss of a child and loss of a spouse. And uh, I'm just giving myself the grace to realize like, wow, that's a lot to hold and process. Mm. And and for you too, of course, like you're in the conversations and I was thinking, you know, like there's that intimacy when you're listening to a podcast or you're editing it, you feel like you're in the room, you know, in the best way. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's like things where if I was in the room, I would, I would want to ask and then, in case with this conversation would feel some hesitation about asking, is this, is this going too far? I, I know like, you know, she agreed to a conversation in this medium, you know, in this context, but, um, how do you feel about that? Like in any moments where do you feel like hesitation around, am I pushing too far? Is this too, too tender a nerve to, to ask about? <laughs> yeah, no. Um, oh, I think, I, I think, you know me well enough and maybe you listeners do now too, but even in my life, right? It's, it's my inclination to ask the question that I'm compelled to 
And like, I feel like I'm a good fit for leading and working in an organization called You're Going to Die. Um, the name, right, as an example, is this like confrontingly intense thing. And someone told me once, like, I'm good for that, right? Because I balance that with tenderness and real sensitivity and understanding that maybe you just aren't okay with that title and maybe don't want to have anything to do with it and that that's okay. And I feel like in the same way with these interviews and in my life, when I'm in conversation with people in the world, that I'm asking permission, you know, by asking the question and trying as often as I can. And it might just sometimes come through how I'm sort of the nature of how I'm in the conversation, like the way I'm being, the way I'm talking, even my inflections and how I use my voice and how I use my eyes and my body um, to maybe even sometimes unconsciously remind them both I'm here fully with you and, and proving in some capacity that I'm a safe place for you to answer these questions, some kind of welcoming and belonging and, and the like, I think I, you hear me say a lot when you're editing, I'm sure like, we don't need to go this, if you don't want to go this direction, like we do not need to talk about this. I mean, I'll say that to people in the world. It's like, I want to know. And by the way, like, if you don't want to go there right now, it's okay. And I think I'm even still, especially after uh, an interaction with one of my best friends during the holidays where I felt and, and I think rightly so, she was calling me out for, <laughs> as an example, me doing that in a taxi ride with a driver, the reliability with which people share stuff with me in that 10, 15 minute trip in their yeah. car, in that lift. And her concern is that I'm asking them to crack open and be raw and vulnerable and then just bailing on them, you know, at the end of a ride. <laughs> and, and that hurt. Like I felt a heartbreak over it. Like it was really upsetting to imagine that I would be doing that with anyone. And we had this like, intense interaction argument about it. And then of course, like, I'm like, I'm going to go home <laughs> and I got in a lift and, uh, I was like, I'm going to take a nap. I told the driver, I was like, I'm taking a nap. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not talking with you. Uh, let me know when we're there. I'm going to fall asleep. And I swear to God, like he just opened up. I, I mean, it's almost like just whatever he could feel or need. And maybe he's just that person. Like sometimes our, our taxi drivers and, and Lyft drivers maybe are where they just also want to connect with people, you know, but it happened even though I was purposely avoiding it. And it meant a lot to me. And I think at the end, I just said, I want you to know that this mattered a lot to me. I told, I said this to the driver. I was like, <laughs> this matters so much to me. Like, I'm never going to forget this conversation. And I just want to acknowledge, like, I'm just bailing right now on you. And, and so uh, just know that it, it, it means a lot to have shared this time with you. And it's not, I don't mean to have it be like, you know, a flippant, forget, you know, thing that I forget. Um, just trying to acknowledge, like, I'm still kind of with you somehow. And I know it's complicated. I know that there could be like some acts of violence in how maybe I, I might be asking someone to open to me, but I, I don't want that. And I'm committed to connecting and believe in people getting a chance to say what they want. I, I hope I get better and better at it in a way that's like helpful and connecting and, um, revealing and proves that it matters to like answer these questions in the right context 
and that not everywhere, you know, like not all places are, are the right place to, to answer some of the questions I want to ask, but it matters to me to like, keep trying in better ways instead of like, not, you know, and maybe like, I won't do it in taxis and lifts um, as often <laughs> as I used to. I want to take know? a taxi with you to see what questions lead up to that. Oh, because, you and I would have a blast. In a taxi. We're, <laughs> I'm in a similar position as you professionally, where I'm often asking people to open up and then dealing with some of the negative consequences of that of like, well, I opened up and now I'm really sad or something, you know, but I also very much don't do that in taxis. And mm -hmm. I generally just have the feeling of like, maybe it's me that doesn't want to be bothered, but like, I don't want to ever bother somebody else. I'm not saying you are yeah. bothering people, but like, no, no, that's, might be, that always stops but, me yeah. from, from going anywhere, you know? And so it'd be yeah. interesting in the series of questions that leads to that, that happening for you. Uh, you know, and I think whether it's like defined as being an empath or just like having really deep present attention, which I, I'm not like bragging. I just feel like I can access that when I'm with people. Um, I think I would pick up on any version of someone not wanting to talk more. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think there is an approach for yeah. me. There's not just a like, hey, thanks for the pickup. Um, who died, you know, like recently. <laughs> Even though I might feel that there is someone that has, I, I mean it, you know, like even though I might feel immediately that there's deep grief, you know, in someone, I, I know I, like I'm able to pick up on that, you know, proven by years of like these moments in my life and in my work. There should be a um, little button in the app that you can yeah, yeah. press. It's like, I'm willing to hear about your dead if you want. I feel like Lyft has a, like, I want quiet you know, I, you, where you can choose sort of how you want your ride to go. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, the driver should have that chance as well. Like driver <laughs> doesn't want to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, driver is open to surface conversation. Driver's looking for therapeutic <laughs> catharsis on deep, deep seated issues and loss and grief. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll have to contact Lyft about that. Um, yeah. And I think in this, to bring it back to the conversation with Krista, yeah, I feel like, especially to, like you said, there's people saying yes to a kind of conversation. And, um, so there's already a, an opening and I feel like I've referenced conversations that don't go as well as I want. And in fairness, you know, to those guests, it's just that they they're not doing it for the reasons that I really sincerely am, which is to get to something maybe that I haven't ever heard um, arrived at in other interviews with them, in the books that I've read by them. You know, I know we constantly refer to Ani DeFranco's episode, but like there's a way we got to talk about her dad's death that I think you even said it, that, that, that she didn't even touch on in her book enough, you know, even though she wrote about that loss, there were things and tears that were, uh, arrived at in that episode that, you know, I felt I wanted to get to beyond how much she offered up in her book. And I feel like the listeners that, that really love that episode and love Ani DeFranco, they felt that too. So I hope for that. And I'll pay attention when I can tell someone's not really wanting to go in deeper. Well, then what, what's the other kind of conversation we have? It's okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to, you ask the questions that someone like me would be sh shy about. That's cool. Asking. Yeah, that's cool. 
to feel like I'm, yeah, a voice for, you know, you and listeners out there. Like I, I think about that lot, a lot as a podcast host, what thread am I pulling on that everyone that's listening, whether they're very clear consciously or not, I think about this, I don't know, it's a theory, right? Or something I'm learning and figuring out, but what you're describing, like, am I asking the questions that the majority of the listeners, that's the road they want to go down. And, and, and maybe even defined by like, they both aren't getting a chance to do it because they're not here. And maybe they wouldn't be comfortable asking that question. Um, and I don't mean to frame my questions in the category of like uncomfortable questions, but they are hopefully the kind of questions that are revealing, like I said, you know, so it's cool to hear you say that, you know, if everybody's afraid to ask questions, then maybe the person is actually grateful for the opportunity to share some of that difficult stuff because everybody else was, didn't think they were willing to talk about it. I know, I know I've had that position before. It's like part of the difficult thing about grief and going through a difficult time is people just kind of frozen and not wanting to push it or uh, you don't have to say it. It's like, dude, it's yeah. all I'm thinking about. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm, I'm afraid I'll say too much because it'll just keep going and going. Like, it's not mm-hmm. like, I don't want to talk about this, you know? So I, I appreciate how you handle that. Thanks, Nick. It's good to get that reflection from you. Yeah. And thank you listeners. If you feel differently, let us know. Uh, you can, <laughs> you can let us know with your rating and reviews in your podcast app, or you can send us an email to pod at yg2d.com. That email goes to both Nick and I. So we're checking it. Both of us, we're reading what you send in. If you have guest suggestions or any other questions, maybe topics you like us to cover certain themes around grief and loss and death and dying, you know, we'll find guests to like help us address those questions. And I think in the future, there may be peppered episodes throughout that, that do a little more of the like, well, let's just kind of talk about this specific loss and the many guests that have touched on it and maybe some new conversations to help highlight and illuminate things around, um, around certain topics and themes. So anyway, Rate and review the show. As always, reminder, please, if this is your first episode or one of many that you've listened to and you haven't rated and reviewed the podcast, please do that. Thank you to everybody that is out there and has. And uh, email us at pod at YG2D. That goes to Nick and I, Ned. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. 